Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, host and creator of the Right Fit Method, the key to professional and personal success. Now, let's join Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In uncertain times, it is especially important to implement my Right Fit Method which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Today, I will focus on how to implement my right fit method in your professional life. Have you ever wondered why your search for the right fit core identity, the right fit career, and the right fit job has not met your expectations? I know why. You have been searching for the best. You compare and contrast choices, hoping that you will make the right choice. If you have been using the standard of best, you will frequently make wrong choices or select wrong fits. Perhaps you are perplexed. It's really quite simple. Picture a barrel of rat-infested rotten apples Compare and contrast the apples. Pick one. What do you have? A rat-infested rotten apple. The point is that if all your choices are wrong and you pick one, it is still wrong. You need to use another standard to make the right decision. I created the standard of the right fit, which is the key to finding right fits. To do that, you must create a blueprint of the right fit and match to that blueprint. You will not compare and contrast anything. You will only focus on matching to a blueprint. I will discuss this further during my guest interview. On to my guest today, Scott M. Richter screenwriter and entertainment attorney. I will interview Scott Richter, who has two careers, screenwriter and entertainment attorney, that fit together like two pieces of a puzzle. On a daily basis, Scott juggles these respective right brain and left brain professions and has even managed to combine both. Among his many active projects, Scott is writing a legal sitcom pilot for Double G Productions. A member of the Writers Guild America West, Scott won the 2007 Austin Film Festival Drama Teleplay Competition for his Grey's Anatomy script, Reality Bites. His credits include three years on the Emmy Award-winning Christopher Lowell show, where he wrote Comedy Cold Opens, and other material for the interior design guru. Scott has also consulted on various Christopher Lowell Enterprise Media projects. Among Scott's other credits are celebrity autobiographical endeavors with Fess Parker, who's Walt Disney's Davy Crockett and TV's Daniel Boone and model and actress Amy Feisman, daughter of sports broadcaster and former NFL great Joe Theismann. In addition to his legal sitcom pilot, Scott is developing a comedy feature for a Paramount Pictures-based production company and was recently invited to pitch to a top TV producer. Among his many activities, Scott is a board member of First Stage, a renowned nonprofit theater group in Hollywood which has staged some of his plays and attracts such prominent actors as Ed Asner, Estelle Harris, and Ed O'Neill. 
Today, I will uncover how Scott manages to balance two demanding careers and how each has served the other. Welcome, Scott, to Win Without Competing. Thank you very much, Dr. Arlene. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. It's my pleasure as well. Where were you born, and what did your parents do? Well, I was born in Flushing, New York, um, and my parents uh, were, uh, my dad was an account executive for Pfizer in New York, and uh, my mom worked as an executive assistant for an executive at Revlon. Um, But very early in my life, in fact, when I was three months old, uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, became ill, and so uh, we moved the entire family to uh, Miami Beach, and I grew up in South Florida. At home, what did you do with your parents that you really enjoyed as a family? You know, we always love to do a variety of fun things. My parents, uh, my dad passed on about five years ago, and he's greatly missed. We were very close. And my mom uh, and he were both like uh, big kids. So um, everything that we did as children was just a lot of fun. We would play board games. We would go to Disney World twice a year. We would just do various things that um, help spark our creativity as well because uh, both my mom and dad are very creative people, and my dad was in advertising for many years and produced commercials and uh, for radio and TV, and also he was an actor. And so, um, so we were always surrounded by just really interesting people and, and lots of fun activities. Do you think that your parents purposely try to instill or seed or plant the seed of creativity in you? They did, and the, and the great thing about them was is that um, it's my sister and I, two children, and they uh, always taught us uh, to do what we really love to do and to do our best, but but never, uh, never, unlike other parents uh, that can really push their kids to be competitive, they never did that. They just told us to be the best that we could be, and, and that's uh, affected my life to this day because that's how I try and live my life. So early on, you learned how to win without competing. That's absolutely right. As a child, you wanted to be a filmmaker and pretended to be a studio mogul. Tell us about that. Well, it's a little bit embarrassing to talk about now, but when I was 12 or 13, I created a fictional uh, movie studio. We had a dog named Jelly Bean, so I called the studio JB Productions, and uh, we, you know, unlike, uh, well, like the MGM Lion, uh, the trademark became our dog, Barking, and so... Um, I made little Super 8 movies, little mysteries involving uh, like, like Nancy Drew type mysteries. My sister and, uh, and a family friend played the two little two young detectives. I did uh, we did parodies of commercials and lots of other fun stuff, and uh, and it was it was a really great time. What about your sister? I'm curious. What does she do today? Well, my sister um, is a uh, professional uh, pet care. She's a pet care professional. She takes care of animals. She does canyon hikes and uh, takes care of everything from dogs and cats and to birds, you name it, here in the Los Angeles area. Um, and she, uh, her company is called the Pet Nannies, the PetNannies.online.com, and she's just fantastic. And she uh, is very creative as well. She's also a voiceover announcer. What did you do after you were graduated from high school? Well, when I graduated from high school, um, my blueprint, as it were, at that time was, was, was that I was going to go to law school. In fact, from the time I was in fifth grade, my fifth grade teacher told my mom and dad that, you know, Scott would be a great attorney or a great senator. He's a really good writer. He loves to speak. And so after high school, I became a pre-law student at the University of Miami with an English and history double major. Um, but ironically, at the same time, I was also extremely involved in radio and TV, um, and I had a radio and TV show at school. So I was really very much involved in both, in both worlds. What did you see the role of law with respect to screenwriting? Did you see a relationship there? You know, at the time, I really didn't. It wasn't until... Um, years later, I think that um, I'm really grateful that my legal education and my law practice has 
not only opened doors for me, but also given me a unique perspective um, creatively. Um, and I've discussed this with other creative professionals. Um, I'm friendly with some other lawyers, uh, term producer Jonathan Shapiro, who was a supervising producer of Boston Legal, is a friend of mine, and, and he's been kind of a mentor for me over the years. And, and he gave me this advice. He said, Scott, even when you're working on a show full-time or you're, or you're writing features full-time, he said, never completely give up the practice of law, not just for the income, but because of the create creativity and ideas that flow from that real-life experience. In terms of law, was it because your teacher had said that you would be a wonderful lawyer that you went to law school? In other words, what really motivated you to do that? Because you had the passion to be a studio mogul. So I'm trying to reconcile, and I expect our listeners too, want to understand how this really all came about. Because especially during these economic times, people are struggling with their core identities. Many have made changes using the economic times to benefit themselves, but also there are others who cannot figure out their core identities. So if you could share what really prompted you ultimately to go to law school, that would be extremely beneficial. Well, absolutely. I'll start by saying that when I began making films as a child, um, the mogul thing came later. When I went to law school, I saw that as a way to work my way up into the studio system and, and eventually run a company like the Walt Disney Company. But it took me a while to realize that wasn't my path. Um, initially, um, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And, um, and, and frankly, uh, the reason I probably went down the law path was is because I, I saw, in, especially in college, I saw a lot of my filmmaker friends graduate and, and basically uh, not have jobs. And, and it's, it's a real, it was a real struggle for many of them. So um, because I had always thought that I would be a good lawyer and was told I'd be a good lawyer, I figured, well, I'll do this. I'll go to law school and, and see how that pans out. And if not, I could always you know, dip my feet back into the other water. All right. But in high school, you did some other things and also in college and subsequently. Give us some more background about how you dipped into the world of entertainment. Well, I started professionally uh, writing at age uh, 18 or 19. I wrote for Disney Magazine, which is a national magazine. And, and having grown up in Florida, uh, I would write stories on the park at Walt Disney World and shows and things like that. And then um, and I continued to write for some regional and national magazines, some feature stories, entertainment-related, some news-related. And then in undergrad, I became involved, uh, even though I was a pre-law major, I always had a passion for radio and TV and film. So I did three things. I took screenwriting classes, I took TV performance classes, classes, and I was a DJ and newscaster at the radio station, and also I had a TV show. Um, I was kind of like the, the Johnny Carson of the University of Miami. I had a show for two years uh, with a studio audience and a co-host, and, and it was a lot of fun. It was a real great outlet for my creativity and um, and then law school came around and that was all squelched for a few years tell us about what happened after you were graduated from law school I think you had a rude awakening I did I, <laughs> I well I'll start by the first semester of law school I, I hated it I really I called my parents I remember one night from the dorm at the University of Miami and said I don't know if I can do this I as good of a student as I was, and, and I considered myself, you know, an intelligent person, but it was it was really tough, and, and uh, but that was just a bad day I was having. I stuck with it. I graduated. I was fortunate enough to uh, have been in Law Review, which is the top 7% of my class, and got a great job and was excited and making a great salary, and then I get there, and, you know, then the reality set in. Here I am in an office wearing a suit and tie every day and with people that I really liked, but a job that I didn't really like. And so it really knocked me for a loop and took me a while before I settled in and, and, and grew to, to like it. But then you left the first firm, am I correct? I did. I, I was, I, I'd always wanted to move to Los Angeles. We came on a family trip when I was in college 
and I was a junior in college, and I knew that I wanted to come back here. So I positioned myself um, with my firm to transfer to the Los Angeles office, and I got a free ride. They paid to move me out to L.A. Uh, everything was great. I took the bar out here six weeks off. Uh, I, I negotiated. I was paid for, to study during that time, paid to take the time off. And, and, you know, thank goodness I passed the bar the first time, like I, as I did Florida. And became an attorney in California, and uh, unfortunately, it just did not really like the corporate mentality, the, if you will, um, win at all costs, um, not so much for clients, but for, but for associates jockeying uh, to, uh, to gain favor with partners, and that was something that I refused to participate in. I, I did my job, I, I did it well, but I would not uh, brown nose or backstab to get ahead, and unfortunately, in that kind of corporate environment, and I'm not saying all big firms are like that, but the experience I had was like that. Um, and so I went to a small firm in Beverly Hills, which did some entertainment law, which was very interesting to me. But unfortunately, it was, uh, it was a recession in the 90s and an economic downturn. I was laid off and, and, uh, and without a job. But then you decided to set up your own company. Well, Tell that's us true. how you pitched yourself to prospective clients. Well, Dr. Arlene, after I, um, th- that was a, a real wake-up call for me. I, I d- made a decision then, and I was still had only practiced for about five or six years, and I said, you know, I just cannot go back to another firm. In fact, the firm that laid me off offered to set me up at another firm and, and, and give me recommendations and, and line up interviews, and I politely declined, so I opened up the Yellow Pages, uh, started in the A's and went to the Z's with the sole practitioners and small attorneys, and I decided that I really want to get back to my creative roots. So to finance my passion, my blueprint became I would get enough freelance legal work to support myself so that I could truly pursue my first love, which was uh, creative endeavors. Now, to do that, however, you had to do two different kinds of pitching, right? Right. You had to pitch for clients, and you had to pitch for screenwriting. How did you pitch yourself to get clients? Because when we talked prior to the show, I liked what you had told me, and apparently the pitch worked. Well, it did. I, I, I told them, you know, look, I'm, I'm a lawyer with big and fall, small firm experience. I'm a member of two bars. I'm a really hard worker, and, and um, I was a member of Law Review, and, and uh, I would love to uh, help you with your court appearances and, and law and motion work. And, 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 and about, out of about a dozen lawyers I called, um, nine of them um, wanted to uh, meet with me. And I ended up getting, out of those nine, I ended up getting clients from about half of them. The other ones ended up hiring people full-time, which wasn't what I wanted. But, um, but the fact is they, were, they admired my moxie that I picked up the phone. I cold-called them, which is an extremely difficult thing to do. I, I, uh, I was scared to death, but I said, you know what? This is what I have to do. I have to think out of the box. And so that was how I pitched myself to prospective uh, legal employers who I would do freelance work for. Now, of course, I have many of my own clients as well as uh, consulting with lawyers on their cases. But in terms of the creative side, um, the, one of the first things I did when I left my law f- the law firm I worked for was to write an article on Fess Parker, who was Walt Disney's Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone, and it was published in a couple national magazines. And so I pitched Fess. I said, look, you are hugely popular amongst the baby boomers. You own a hotel. You own a winery. Why not do a book that could not only tell your life story, but would be a great marketing tool to you know, direct people towards your various enterprises? And so that pitch worked. He hired me to write a book proposal for his autobiography, and, uh, and it, was, it was a tremendous experience. I'd like to step back to the cold calling. I talk about the need to do cold calling in my book, Win Without Competing. In today's economy, people are madly blasting their resumes from Burbank to Bombay. When I recommend cold calling, I can hear over the phone the bodies freezing up. (laughs) Do you have any suggestions, Scott, in terms of 
how you would help people to relax when they make a cold call. Interestingly enough, I visited my dentist today, um, and actually this was a new dentist, and they photograph every patient. Apparently, to help the office personnel feel comfortable to make a cold call. So when they make a call, they look at the photo, which I thought was, was an interesting idea. What suggestions might you have? I think that's a great idea to personalize and get an idea and visualize who you're speaking to. Um, for me, you know, and, I'll, and, and as I mentioned, I was scared to death. It was really hard for me at first. And I just told myself, you know what? I bring a lot of things to the table, and I, the people I'm calling need, will need my services. That's what I told myself. They're not doing me a favor by offering me work or asking me to come down to meet with them. Um, we're here to help each other. I bring something to the table, and, and I'm the seller, and they're the buyer. And, so, um, and I just had fun with it. I, I relaxed. I, was, uh, I let my personality come out. I tried to just... Be authentic, which I think is the best advice I can give. And being a little nervous is okay. And once you talk to someone, even just it's a little disarming uh, if you even say to them, you know, look, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually a little nervous. And, you know, once you get them on the phone and you're talking and you get past the gatekeepers and you're actually having a conversation with the person you want to talk to. So my best advice is, again, to just be yourself, be authentic, and, and relax and have fun. Good advice. Writing for the Christopher Lowell Show was the turning point for your writing career, which prompted your acceptance into the Writers Guild America West. How did you get this writing gig? Well, um, Christopher's manager, uh, Dan Levin, is a longtime friend of mine, and Dan and I went to school together at the University of Miami, and Dan's a really great guy and a very talented uh, talent manager and among his other endeavors. And, and I became friendly with Christopher through Dan. And um, Christopher and I had dinner at one point, and he said to me, you know, I, I really wasn't thrilled with some of the writing on my show in and, and the past season, and how would you like to take a crack at, um, at, at writing some cold opens, which are, uh, for your listeners that may not be familiar, they're 30-second uh, sort of comedic openings to his show where he would dress up as these various characters um, that was many of them were parodies and I said sure I, I was I was flattered because he, he liked my writing he had read some of my other work he said the only thing is um, we're about to shoot in 10 days uh, I think 45 or 45 50 some odd shows and I need 45 or 50 cold opens in that time so I basically um, hunkered down and and, you know, I would have court appearances in the mornings that I would do, and then the afternoon and evening I would just be writing around the clock to come up with concepts for the various shows. I would, he would email me the theme of the show, and then I would come up with cold opens. And uh, some of them I, I wrote on a Thursday and Friday, and then they were being shot on Saturday at the Universal back lot where the show was, uh, where the show was taped. And it was a huge thrill, and uh, it confirmed for me that, um, this is really what I wanted to do. I wanted to write, wanted to produce eventually, and, and to have my creative vision uh, out there like uh, many other people's. Today, your screenwriting and law careers fit together like two pieces of a puzzle. Explain how each serves the other and your successful juggling act. Well, it's a, it's a real challenge. I, um, I'm really blessed that I have a, a great clients, both uh, on the attorneys that I do work for, where I work as a, as a con subcontractor on, and consult as of counsel on their cases, and my individual clients that range from entertainment clients to uh, everything, to business litigation, business contracts, real estate. Um, and so juggling them is a question of looking at my calendar and seeing what court appearances I may have in a particular week or what appointments I have on the law side. And most of those are in the morning uh, from, say, around 8 to noon. And then the afternoon um, I devote to writing. I'm writing a, a comedy feature now, a family comedy feature with uh, a talented uh, collaborator named Steve Spiro, and uh, he and I are, um, are are working on that about three or four hours a day in the afternoon. And then uh, on my individual projects, after dinner, I'll work on those for a few hours and do emails. So um, it varies week to week, but 
but I'm, I'm committed to doing both and, uh, and frankly, really enjoy both. I enjoy law now, ironically, a lot more than I did um, when I was uh, first practicing. And um, in terms of your question how they serve each other, I think that the law serves the writing particularly well because you know what they say, sometimes truth is stranger than, than fiction. And, and I'll be sitting in a courtroom, and I'll hear someone say something, and it'll just a character will pop in my head like, oh, wow, this would make a great character, or this would be a great line or a great idea for a story. And, and there you have it. I'm, I'm there getting paid as a lawyer and generating ideas as a writer at the same time. You must have a very busy head, Scott. <laughs> I do. I, it's hard to shut off sometimes. <laughs> You use the standard of the right fit to make decisions using blueprints. What is the blueprint of the right fit legal client, and why did you recently fire a client? Well, yeah, that's the first time I've actually ever had to do that. And I know you and I had chatted about this briefly uh, when we talked before the show, and um, well, I'll tell you in short, my blueprint for the right fit legal client is someone who is very much like myself, who is honest, who is uh, authentic, who is uh, sincere, and who, um, who I believe in. Um, I cannot work for a client whose uh, ethics, and I'm not suggesting that uh, as a lawyer we're advocates and our job is to, is to do the best we can for a client. And, uh, and there's certainly, uh, we all spin, a lawyer's our job is to, you know, spin facts, and, and that's what lawyers do. They argue and, and, and put the, try and put the facts in the best light that serves their clients. But I'll only do that um, within the realm of truth. Like, I've fortunately have not had a client that's ever asked me to lie. I wouldn't do that or perjure myself. I won't allow a client to do that. Um, so, in short, my legal my blueprint for my law clients is people who are good energy, who are, are, are positive people, who are sincere and authentic, and, um, and, and who really uh, who need help because I have a strong sense of justice and I do my best for every client as if they were uh, brother, sister, mother, or father. Now, what happened with this client that you had to fire? In other words, what prompted the firing? Well, unfortunately, um, this client, there were things that weren't known to me that would not have made this client the right fit. Um, and, I'll, and frankly, I, I did have some doubts when I took on the client, but it was someone who I really liked, who had had a bad experience with, uh, with two prior lawyers, a uh, really horrible experience that made them very mistrustful. So I worked really, really hard to gain this person's trust. Um, and was told, uh, you know, thank you, you're great, you're doing a great job. And then, unfortunately, uh, the person I was dealing with had other layers of people who wanted to sort of stir the pot and get involved and, and sort of uh, uh, act as messengers to the client, which I was not on board with. And I said, look, I, I can't work this way. Um, and I, I just said, this isn't working out. And I said, you're going to have to find a new lawyer. And it was a really hard thing to do. It really was because I really liked this person. But the energy was so became so toxic um, that I just decided I had to take a step back and, and really couldn't be involved anymore. Had you tried to discuss um, the involvement of other people and basically point out the need for you to work on a one-to-one -one with the client directly? You know, I, I had, and I, had, I basically said that, um, you know, I'm happy to to uh, if, it, if it is rele relevant to the project and the person I'm speaking with has information that, uh, that I would need to deal with them directly, then I'm happy to do that. But the problem is it's extended to other areas, and once you start having multiple people communicating, then the risk of a communication breakdown is really great because when one person tells another person who then relays it to the client, um, that wasn't something that I was comfortable with, and, and so I, I just decided that uh, for many reasons that uh, that relationship uh, would unfortunately have to end. So you tried to fix the fit, but you recognized that you could not fix it. Am I correct, Scott? 
I did, and even as recently as the other day, I was trying to find a way to to make it work, and I just realized that, you know, it's probably just best to at this point to walk away and and wish them well, and uh, you know, and I handle it very professionally, and it's an unpleasant thing to do. I I don't like to do it, and fortunately, in in 21 years of practicing, it's the first time I've ever had to do it. Well, your blueprint for all these years must have worked beautifully then. Well, knock on wood, so far so good. After this experience, how would you modify the blueprint so that you only you never again have this experience? Is there a way you could modify the blueprint or was it something that was unknown that you would not be able to predict? I think it was something that was unknown. I will say the blueprint worked to the extent that I really think that this particular client is a good person, an honest person. It wasn't a question of veracity but um, or truthfulness, but it but because of the external factors like you mentioned that I did not foresee, um, I I think that was the issue and and so um, you know we do our best to to sort of judge people and judge the situation when we're when we're hired as lawyers and and sometimes it just doesn't work out and um, and actually it's it's quite it's quite, it's not uncommon to to happen. Um, many of my colleagues have had similar experiences. Um, and uh, far more often uh, than fortunately than I've had, so I've been you know been pretty lucky. Well, maybe they don't have your blueprint, Scott. Well, thank you. I, I think that's probably it too. What is your blueprint for preparing to pitch a screenwriting project? Well, my blueprint is um, whether it's a TV show or a feature project or, or reality show, of which I'm working on two pitches now with a couple of, of collaborators. We, uh, the, the first thing is research. You can never be prepared enough. I can't really stress that. Um, I believe that in any business or industry you're in, the more prepared you are, the, the better you are to, uh, to get uh, what you're looking for and to, and to achieve your goals because I, I think there's, you can never be too prepared. And so whether, I write, whether it's research I'm doing when I write a script or researching the producer I'm meeting with, I like to know who the person is, what makes them tick, um, even some personal things. What are their interests? What are their hobbies? Things that will help spark a uh, organic conversation, which is, I think, a great way to foster relationships. It's, after all, as people and human beings on, on a personal level, uh, I think we hit it off with people when we have uh, common interests. And so I think that finding that common denominator uh, for the people you're meeting with and, and knowing uh, what they want, who they are, what makes them tick goes a long way. I remember as a child, my dad was a cantor in a synagogue, and we would walk through the town hand in hand, and my dad would stop and talk to people. And after each conversation, he would turn to me and want me to explain not the words of what people said, but the meaning behind the words, because he wanted to teach me with whom he was dealing so that I would learn with whom I was dealing and use the same approach as I was growing up. So basically, that's in part what you're saying, to understand with whom you're dealing. Absolutely. In terms of pitching, how has this helped you to create the pitch and to what extent has it improved your pitching successes? Well, I, um, I'll give you an example. Um, there's an event called the Great American Pitch Fest, of which I recently was a, a moderator for a film panel. And in past years, I had actually been someone that would pitch. It's basically like the speed dating of pitching. And uh, I w you would pitch to managers, agents, producers, and executives. And when I would craft my pitch, um, I would come up with like an interesting hook, like something that would be newsworthy. Like for example, I was pitching um, a few years back a supernatural small town drama pilot, and so in pitching that show, um, I sort of uh, began by giving people the genesis for the premise, how I came, how it popped in my head, and it was based on an article I had seen um, in a in a magazine, and, and I sort of draw the try and draw the uh, 
pitchy um, into it and, and so they can see where the root of my passion comes from because I really firmly believe that if you have passion in a pitch, then you're in, you're in great shape if you're passionate, passionate about it. If you're not, they can spot it a mile away. So basically you combine the research with your passion, is that correct? That's exactly right. And I try and make uh, tell a story, be as engaging as possible, um, and, and to um, let my passion come through. Because, again, I, I, I can't overemphasize, I think passion is really important. Every project I'm working on right now, I'm extremely passionate about. I'm passionate about the characters. I'm passionate about the premise. And I'm even passionate in the case of uh, my collaborator. He's a, a really great friend. And he and I are like two kids when we're, when we're writing. We're doing a rewrite now on our script. And, um, and it's a real great experience. It's my first collaboration, and we complement each other well, and his passion feeds off of mine and vice versa. So that passion that we have for this project, you know, we're confident that when we pitch it and meet with studio executives and production companies that that passion will translate into a sale for us down the road. It sounds like you're both soaked in passion. We are, it's, and it's great. What is your blueprint for accepting the terms of a contract after you sell your script? Well, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there, um, and as an attorney, I see both sides of it. I represent artists, writers, uh, directors, um, talent managers, and um, and oftentimes, if you don't, you know, if you're not a <laughs> Steven Spielberg or J.J. Abrams, of which 99.9% of us are not, um, it's really tough sometimes to get the terms that you want, and, and especially in the case of a feature project. Oftentimes, uh, for writers that are not as established as some, you know, the A-listers, they'll say, well, we want to buy the script, uh, and you get to do a couple rewrites, but after that, I mean, that's it. And then they can turn it over to someone else who, um, and who may ruin it or may not carry through your vision, and that's a, a risk you may take. So I think in answer to your question, I think you have to make a decision. Is the money I'm being offered, is it sufficient enough that I would be willing to walk away from it? And that's really a, a personal question. In fact, a friend of mine uh, who was recently on uh, the screenwriting panel that I hosted, uh, he's a, an accomplished screenwriter, and he actually had to sold a script to a large Hollywood studio. Uh, the studio then proceeded to change what was going to be a female character uh, into a male character and, in his view, ruined it And with a really uh, major changes that he did not approve. So he actually sued them. Um, won a settlement, which included getting the rights to the script back. Um, and then, um, and so I really admired him for doing that. And ironically, he ended up selling the script to the studio again down the road. Um, and, um, but it was not a pleasant experience. And, and fortunately, it's the exception than the rule. But, but, uh, but it is something that I think each writer has to sort of take on a case-by-case -case basis, like, is the money I'm being paid uh, and the terms of the contract such that I can live with it if my creative vision is altered? And that's, uh, that's a, there's a different answer, I think, for different people on that. Have you figured out the extent to which you would accept the altering of a script? You know, um, I haven't been faced with that yet, and I, I as a writer, um, and one of my mentors, uh, Tom Blomquist, who I had taken classes uh, years ago at UCLA Extension, who, uh, I had taken some advanced TV writing classes with him, and I remember he said, this isn't necessarily true as feature writers, but as TV writers, or writers in general, he says, we're often like tailors. We're asked to snip a little here, snip a little there. So if I believe that the changes that I'm asked to do do not change the core of the project, then I think you have to be flexible and you have to be willing to take notes and have to accept uh, the fact that your vision will not be unaltered from script to screen. With that said, if we're talking about major changes where entire storylines are thrown out or characters are eliminated, I think that's another proposition altogether and, and that would be a lot tougher to swallow. I think I'd have a lot harder time with that. So basically, he gave you a blueprint. He did, and, and it really is an analogy I think works really well. Um, the Taylor analogy, I, I always think that um, as creative professionals, um, and, and I have a wonderful writer's group, and in our writer's group, we give each other notes 
on our work, and we meet like about once a month. And the great thing about it is, is that we're all open to constructive criticism. And I think that helps you grow as an artist. And by getting suggestions, um, and frankly, even if it's not my idea, if someone has a suggestion that makes it better, I'm all for it because the goal is to make the project as, as good as it can be. I'd like to step back and talk more about how you win without competing and how you set the standard. Thinking about raising the bar over the years, do you consciously figure out how you're going to raise the bar? You know, it's like someone who starts to uh, run every day and they decide they're going to run a half a mile or a quarter of a mile, then they're going to raise the bar to the next stage of that. How would you apply that approach to your career? whether it's your legal career or your screenwriting career? Well, uh, Dr. Arlene, I always, um, and I, I have this story that I like to tell, and it's, I remember it vividly. When I was in the third grade, I had this teacher named Mrs. Norman, and um, out of the 30 kids, there were six of us that were in this advanced reading group, and so we were in a little circle uh, while everyone else had gone off to recess, we had our little sort of reading group, and, and she gave a test, and we all failed. We got an F, and I had never gotten an F in my life, I mean, up in, in, or since, and so it was pretty jolting. And so she said to us, look, okay, you guys just obviously didn't get the concept, or, or maybe I didn't do a great job of explaining it, but I'm going to go through it again, and you can take another test. If you get an A on the second test, then I'll average the two grades, and you'll get a C. Otherwise, you can just take the F and go out to recess with everyone else. Well, out of the six kids, four of them said, you know, screw it, I'm going out to recess. And me and this girl uh, said, you know what, we're going to take it again. We took it again. We got an A. And you know what, she didn't average the grade and give us the C. She gave us both the A. And it's just sort of been to my core. My core uh, principle is really is to persevere. I may get discouraged or disappointed like we all do from time to time. But I do believe that um, perseverance and and um, and constantly setting the bar higher for yourself is is just really important. And and I'm probably my harshest critic. If I do something or write something, and I get notes and 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 people like it, but they're not sort of getting it, then I'll say, you know what, I have to go back to the drawing board and take this to the next level. And so that's how I try and set the bar higher for myself. I aspire to be as good as the people who I admire in the industry. And, um, and so I, I, I do that on a daily basis, whether it's a, a writing project or even a legal matter. Looking back, would you have become an attorney first to jumpstart your second career? You know, it's funny. It's like the movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow about this alternate sort of life that you may have had. And I truly firmly believe as I get older that we're all on our individual paths and that everything happens for a reason. So um, at times before I came to that realization, I, I wished I could go back and have gone to film school. Um, I think I, I would have uh, been at, that, at a young age uh, if I'd continued from my teens into high school and college, I thought I, I think I would have been a really great filmmaker, but that wasn't my path. It was to go to law school, become an attorney, do creative endeavors as well, and then sort of come full circle where I now have the privilege and pleasure of, of pursuing both careers. And so um, I guess the answer to your question is I probably, I don't think I would change anything because I think this is the way it was supposed to be for me. What I think is interesting is that early on, when you were a child, you started off with the, the mogul passion, and initially, with respect to law, you didn't like it, but, but then the passion grew. And um, interestingly enough, I had interviewed uh, Jan Constantine, who is the uh, lead attorney at the Authors Guild in, in New York, and she won the case, the copyright case against Google. 
And when she started practicing law, she didn't like it. But when she saw what she could do for people, all of a sudden her passion just developed. It was like an instant thing from what she described. And I can completely identify with that. I mean, because I have a strong sense of justice, you know, it's very, it's, it's very exhilarating when you get a good result for a client who you really believe in and who you feel has, uh, has not been treated fairly by someone else, and whether it's through a settlement or a case you take to trial. And, you know, look, every case doesn't turn out like you might hope, but I'm, fortunately I've had a really good track record and worked with really great people and, and, and do get a, a significant lift when you, when you get a good result for a client and you make them feel good about the job you've done for them and, and, you've, and you've tried to do your best to make them whole. And I think that's, uh, I draw my passion in law from the pleasure I get from, from helping people who, who need my services. Looking forward, what should we be watching for? And how can we track you, Scott? Well, um, Dr. Arlene, I have a lot of exciting projects going on. I have, like I mentioned, I have some reality, a couple of reality show projects. I have a couple of feature projects I'm working on. You'd mentioned at the beginning of the show, one is uh, a comedy feature that I'm, I'm developing for a Paramount-based uh, production company that I'm very excited about and looking to, uh, I've finished, just finished a tr- finishing up a treatment for that and uh, I'm going to be working on the script next. And uh, as well as my sitcom uh, pilot that I'm working on with uh, with someone, and uh, we have some talent that we have in mind for that. And so um, I plan on being involved both in the radio and and TV worlds, and uh, for God willing, a long time to come, and uh, and also producing as well down the road because I really uh, I've done some directing in, in my theater company, and I really enjoy the entire creative process: writing, producing, directing. Uh, and I just I love the collaborative process. I love working with other people. So, um, so the best way to keep track of me is uh, I'll, I'll give you I have a couple of websites. The first one is is up and running, and it's my law website. It's uh, scottmrichter.com, S-C-O-T-T-M-R-I-C-H-T-E-R.com. And um, my writer uh, WGA, my writer's website. Um, I'm just getting up and running, and that's scottrichter.tv. And, uh, and I'm also uh, on Facebook. And so if any of your listeners would like to contact me, they can reach me through my website and check out my email address and uh, shoot me a line. And, and I'd be happy to, uh, to chat with anyone who maybe might need legal services or who's a fellow artist, and, and I'm always open to that. Terrific. What advice do you have for our listeners, especially those contemplating a dual career? Well, I think uh, my best advice is if the dual career, it depends on their blueprint, of course, and and my blueprint is that um, law, and it's sort of changed because law became a way to uh, finance my creative passion, and now law is something that I enjoy doing and want to continue to do. But my best advice for people uh, balancing two careers is to just, is to stay focused. I have this wonderful friend, a homeless man, um, named Elliot, who I see at the downtown courthouse all the time, and I, I've seen him for at least 10 or 12 years, and we have these very deep conversations, and he always tells me, Scott, stay focused, stay focused. Now, I, I think that's really important to have goals, to stay focused on them, and to not let uh, disappointment get you down or discouragement keep you down, but to just dust yourself off and keep going. And if you truly love what you do, then I really do believe that the, that the money will follow, and, and that's uh, I firmly believe that. With respect to this homeless man, did he has he shared anything about himself as to why he's homeless? It sounds like he's a wise man. He is. He's, um, he's a Vietnam vet. He's an African-American man, like in his, I want to say his early 60s. And um, and he has a, a sister who lives in uh, Colton, California, which is the Inland Empire, just east of Los Angeles. And he stays with her on weekends, but um, he doesn't want to be a burden on her because she has a husband who's disabled. And so um, they'll go to movies and dinner on the weekends and things. And then during the week, he lives downtown on the street, and then he'll take the train to her house. But he's very wise. Um, I remember when my dad passed, he told me some things that were very 
very deep and very moving just about uh how we're all on our own path and and how uh you know my father would live on through me because he is a part of me literally and just simple things but the way he said them and his demeanor and and the interesting thing about him is is that he's not one of these people that's just looking to you know get your money never ask me for money never ever um, I've given him money. I try and help him whenever I can, and around the holidays, I've given him fifty or a hundred dollars so he can so he can get a room. But but he's uh, he's kind of like my guardian angel. I I really uh, I, I really uh, I love him. I think he's a great human being. Scott, you are a win without competing man. Thank you, Dr. Arlene. You are soaked in passion for your dual careers. You know your core identities. You compete with yourself, raising the bar higher and higher, seeking to set the standard. You understand right fits and passionately pursue them, resisting the temptation to settle for less. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You have mastered the art of the pitch. You think outside the box. Thank you, Scott for joining me today. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Arlene. It's been an honor and a privilege. I've truly enjoyed the experience. I as well. There are many ways that you can learn more about my Right Fit Method. For an overview of the method, visit our new website, drarlenerightfitmethod.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R. A-R-L-E-N-E, with no space, then rightfitmethod.com. To listen to more than 50 radio shows, go to drbarrow.com. That's D-R-B-A-R-R-O.com. To experience how to win without competing from many perspectives, visit win withoutcompeting.com. Sign up for my professional and personal newsletters on the homepage. Read excerpts from my book, Win Without Competing. Master the Right Fit Method and change both your professional and personal life. Visit the career coaching and personal coaching pages to learn how to master the method Step one, read the book. As a professional speaker, I motivate audiences to throw out their barrels of rat-infested rotten apples and switch to the standard of the right fit. I invite you to do that as well. To contact my office, please call 310 310- Four four one five three zero five. That's three ten four four one five three zero five. Email me at drbarrow. That's d r b a r r o at winwithoutcompeting.com. My company, Barrow Global Search Inc., of which I am the founder and CEO is based on the west side of Los Angeles near UCLA. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will find professional and personal success. Thank you for listening to the Win Without Competing show. Goodbye for now. Dr. Arlene.